Good morning. Welcome to the All Souls Forum here at All Souls UU Church. Uh, my name is Richard Thompson, and I'm a member of the All Souls UU Forum Committee. Uh, dedicated members of our Forum Committee come and go, but the Forum remains. Uh, it has been operating since 1943, provide a platform for the discussion of significant issues. And this, if you do your math, is our 80th year. Today, our speakers will present for about 35 minutes. This is followed by a Q&A period of about 20 minutes. I'm pleased to introduce this morning's speakers from the nonprofit Save, Inc., uh, Heather Bradley Geary, Misha Smith, and Tony Casey. These three are staff and board members of Save, Inc., which is a nonprofit involved in fixing Kansas City's housing crisis. A little history. Uh, SAVE started as an eight-bedroom hospice facility for uh, people in the 80s for people that were dying of AIDS. Um, as the complexion of the disease changed and people were living with HIV, uh, they realized they didn't need uh, a place for people to die, but rather more space, like a group home, for people to live. It now, it has grown to an organization that serves about uh, 1,900 people annually, including people with HIV, but also people with mental health and substance abuse issues, and LGBTQ plus youth. The topic this morning is solving the housing crisis in Kansas City. I think it's safe to say we will look forward to what they have to share. Take it away, Heather. Um, my name is Heather Bradley Geary. My pronouns are she, her, and I am the immediate past president of Save Inc. Um, board. Um, so I'm currently on the board. I think I have one more year, actually. I'm also a social worker. I'm going to give you just a little bit of information about the state of homelessness in our community. And then Tony and Misha are the experts as far as what we're doing at Save. So they're going to give you more specifics about what we're doing at Save. Um, just a little bit, because I'm also a policy professor, I have to give you a little bit of background. Um, really, when we talk about housing, 1968 is really the first time we had housing legislation, and that's when they started talking about the Fair Housing Act. And then we really didn't have anything until 1994. And in 1994, under the Clinton administration, uh, they started Continuum of Care, which was basically saying, okay, communities, you need to start working together to end homelessness, and we're going to stream federal funds from housing and urban development into those communities. Um, and so I'm going to talk a little bit about what our Continuum of Care looks like in Kansas City. But that legislation had uh, happened in 1994. And then we didn't see anything again until the Obama administration in 2009. And that was really the most significant housing legislation we've ever had. And that basically said, guess what? To end homelessness, it's actually very simple. We just need to provide people homes and housing really should be a human right. Um, and so we really started getting away from transitional housing. Um, we still have to have emergency shelter because we don't have enough units. But we really started talking about we need permanent housing for folks that are homeless. And so that was the Heart Act. Just a little bit of the lay of the land. Every night, there's about 580,000 people that are homeless in our country. The home, This homeless definition is folks that are literally homeless. So these are folks that are sleeping in their cars, on the in campgrounds, um, 
place not meant for human habitation, folks that like lots of times we'll see, especially with our youth, they double up. Um, so they'll like stay with friends. That's not considered homeless. So all those folks that are maybe staying with family one night, they're actually not considered homeless by the federal definition. Um, and then I have it just broken out. Uh, about 33,000 folks are veterans. 421,000 are individuals. And then, sorry, it's kind of small. But when we talk about chronic homelessness, there's about 127,000 folks that are considered chronic homeless. That's folks that are have had at least four episodes of homelessness in the last three years. So these are folks that might have, well, they will, they do have a mental illness. Um, it's just really hard to get, they're the hardest to house. Um, and then we have about 30,000 folks that are youth. Um, and then the rest are uh, persons and families. So that that's what the national, what the outlook looks like as far as homelessness nationally. Okay, so this is what it looks like in our community. Um, in Kansas, in the state of Kansas, there's 2,397 folks that are homeless every night. And then in Missouri, we have 5,992 people that are homeless every night. Um, specific to Kansas, when I talked earlier about the continuum of care, so Wichita, Topeka, and then Johnson County each have their own continuum, which means federal funds are coming into those communities. Anything that falls out of that is considered the balance of state. Um, and I want to talk a little bit because I think it's really important to know the inequity that exists in homelessness. So in Johnson County, there's 212 people that sleep on the street every night. 23% uh, of those folks are identify as Black, but the Johnson County community only has 2.6% of the population that's Black. So when you look at the inequity of homelessness, and then you'll see 62% are white, but 86.6% of the population is white. So there's also this huge inequity when we talk about homelessness. Okay, specific to where we're at now, um, as I mentioned, there's about 6,000 people every night that are homeless in Missouri. Each of these areas have their own federal funding. So St. Louis, city and county, because they can't get along, each have their own continuum. Uh, St. Charles, which is just outside of the county. Um, and then Springfield, Joplin, St. Joe, and then Kansas City. We're one of the only continuums in the nation that crosses state lines. So our whole continuum is Wyandotte County in Jackson County, which causes a, it's, it's interesting. Um, there's, I, I believe there's only one other uh, continuum in the country and that's Nebraska, Iowa, um, Omaha and Council Bluffs. Um, and then here's our, there's roughly 2000 people every night that are homeless in the Kansas City area. So this is just Wyandotte and Jackson County. Um, and then you'll see again, the inequities. 36% uh, of those folks are Black, and that it's only 28% of the population is Black in this community. So um, there's a huge, again, inequity of homelessness. Okay, so how do we do? We can end homelessness. I promise you that we can do this. It is a solvable issue, um, and we do it through permanent housing. We put people in units. We put people in housing units. Um, so in Missouri, we need about 17,000 units to end homelessness. And in Kansas, we need about 9,000 units. Um, 
just a little bit about what it costs. So even, I know all of you believe this, that ending homelessness is the right thing to do, but even if you don't, it is the fiscally responsible thing to do. So it costs us $153 per day. This is this is Kansas City data uh, to keep someone homeless. So this is like, emer- uh, we took all the data on emergency, uh, going to the ER, what it costs for an ambulance ride. It costs us $153 a day per person to keep them homeless. It costs us $44 a day to house them. So why would we not? It's like we're, we're saving per person $100 a day to provide permanent housing. Okay, and then just real quick, because I want to get to the meat of saving. Um, these are ways that we fund permanent housing, mostly through the low-income housing tax credit, which is a federal program. Um, but we can do it in all these different ways too. This is bricks and mortar, right? This is like the actual build the building. Um, and then the, and then we can't just put folks in units, right? We've got to support them. We've got to provide all those services. And so these are ways that we do that nationally, but in Kansas City too, is through vouchers. And for I'm sure lots of you are familiar with like Section 8. It basically means a resident will pay 30% of their income to live there, and this voucher makes up the difference. So if I make $100 in a month, I pay $30 for my rent. This voucher makes up the difference. And then just real quick, this is what it looks like. It, um, you know, we have a rule that you should want to move your kid in there. So if you build permanent housing, I work for a group called Vecino Group. If we build the housing, this is what it should look like. It should look beautiful and I should want to move my kids in there, right? Because housing is a human right and people deserve to live in decent housing also, um, and so this is just some examples. This is in Salt Lake City. Um, and that this one here is 80 units uh, with 23 units set aside for folks that are chronically homeless. The rest is just affordable. Um, this is in New York uh, for transition age youth. So, so uh, young people ages 18 to 24. That's just an aerial view of it. That's what it looks like on the inside. Beautiful. Um, And this is the last example I have. This is in Springfield, Missouri. This is for uh, survivors of domestic violence. And this is what that one looks like. So again, supportive housing can be beautiful. And you wouldn't even know it's supportive housing, right? We fight against communities a lot about bringing supportive housing into the community. Lots of times people, it's sometimes nicer than the market rate. (laughs) Thing. Uh, and people don't even know that it's supportive housing. So with that, that's more of Talia. I'm going to turn it over to, here's resources, um, all the data, where all the data comes from that I just quoted. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Misha, right? Hi, I'm Misha Smith, um, they, them. And at SAVE, I am the tenant-based rental assistance program manager and let's, we'll get it pulled up. Um, I'm over seven different programs, um, all vouchers to get people into housing. And I'm going to talk about that. So um, this talks about how we are working to end homelessness. We serve 
about 2,000 um, people. And then these are the uh, the grants that I'm over. Um, HOPWA, um, housing, I forgot opportunities, housing opportunities for people living with HIV or AIDS. Um, Shelter Plus Care, also called Housing Plus Care. It is another program uh, specific for people living with HIV or AIDS. Supportive Housing Program. We have a youth program, um, 18 to 24. And then we have these three grants through the Department of Mental Health, SCB, SCK, SCE. So um, the reason why I'm going to talk about vouchers today is there are many, many times we have individuals show up at our door saying, I heard if I come here, I'm homeless. You're just going to give me a voucher. That is unfortunately not how the process works. And we hate having to tell them that because we know they're desperate. They are absolutely desperate. We've had people break down. We've had people get angry, which is valid. Um, we try to come from a very trauma-informed space. And the one thing that they say a lot is, someone told me to come here. It's what you do. So we are working to inform people how the process really works because we want people to get help and not make those extra treks all the way over to us and only to be told, oh, you've got to go do all this other stuff. So I'm going to explain some of the differences um, and what a person has to do to get a voucher. So lottery-based, that just means that a space opens up, we have the funding to issue another voucher. Um, notices go out to our community partners and we um, let them know like, hey, we have an opening and it can be for a one-bedroom. So people who have clients that are homeless, um, living with HIV or AIDS, they can um, send in a referral um, for that person. And then they use a lottery to select the person. That way it's equal for everyone. And so um, once eligible and they're selected, then we let um, the agency or whoever referred them know so that the person can come in and do an intake with another member of our team. And at that time, they provide all of their information to see if they still qualify because um, we also have to, they have to meet income guidelines. Um, for HOPWA, it is like 50% of area median income. And I have those on another slide if anyone's curious what the income guidelines look like. Um, and so the lottery based is for the shelter plus care. Also, you'll see it referred to as housing plus care as well as HOPWA. So for the others, they come through our um, COC, the Community of Care, which right now is managed through the Greater Kansas City Coali Coalition to End Homelessness. So we have a thing in Kansas City where someone can call 211 and say, I'm homeless and I want to get a voucher. Um, they complete what's called the VI SPDAT, which is the Vulnerability Index Service prioritization de uh, decision assistance tool. Like I said, we just call it the VI SPDAT because I always have to look it up because I never say it. But this um, talks to the, uh, you talk to the person and do like a screening interview and you ask a lot of questions. And I'm actually certified to do these as well because 
we want people to have this very specific training because you are asking them very, very personal questions because we have to truly assess their risk level because the lottery based is anyone who qualifies is submitted and they pull a name. Um, for this, you actually are ranked based on your level of vulnerability and other qualifying factors. We ask about where they slept last and how long they've been there because, as um, was mentioned, about um, the chronic homelessness. We ask if they have any type of disability because they do, for the rest of all of these grants, they do have to have a disability. HOPWA and Shelter Plus Care is HIV or AIDS. The rest, they have to have a documented disability. We ask them about their um, exposure to violence. Um, we ask about drug use. We ask about substance use. We ask about um, other resources they've tried because we also do try to use diversion because there's not always enough space for everyone that calls. So we want to assess what are um, the resources they have. So the person takes this and it's like, oh, this person meets the guidelines. They are at a high risk level. Um, their name goes on a by name list. And then when there are openings on the grants, they look through and they go, oh, this person fits, save DMH, the SCV has an opening right now, we're going to send over the referral. Our intake person gets the referral, also reaches out to the person, does the intake, and if they qualify, then they begin the, pro the process with us um, to get on a voucher and start finding housing. But the first step is they have to get selected and make it through the process. They can't just walk up and we do this. Um, and as I said, HOPWA eligi eligibility for HIV um, or AIDS, they do have to provide documentation, which if they're living with this, that's pretty easy to get, or they can go get a free test to get updated. Um, oh, sorry, for HOPWA, it's 80%. I forget, some of the numbers are different. Um, but this is something that, and you also do not have to have um, income. You can come into our program and not have income. We also operate from a no barrier to housing place, which means they do not have to be sober. They do not have to, um, what was it? Oh, they do not have to work and they do not have to be in case management because we know that housing is one of the first interventions you need to do before you can address anything else. Um, so, and then also on HOPWA, they do not have to meet the definition of HUD homelessness. They can be sleeping on a couch. They could have just been housed and lost it. Um, they just have to meet income guidelines and be living with HIV or AIDS. And then these are some of the incomes. Um, as you can see, um, that's kind of where we're at. Um, but with the DMH, youth, and SHP, they do have to meet the definition of homelessness. They do have to have a disability. And then the income requirements are at 30%. Um, and then SHP also, um, we give vouchers and we have rent standards called fair market rent, which is our FMR. And it's set by HUD every year. Um, SHP uses the numbers from the year before. So people that get on that voucher are usually 
not always happy because they're like, oh, um, the numbers up until today, it was like a one bedroom was a thousand and two. For SHP, it's 875. <laughs> so it gets really hard to find them housing. And then, um, like I said, for the tenant based rental assistance, um, it's also based on household composition. So if they have other people in the household, we have to get their information if they're making income, if they're like an adult um, and what's going on with them. And then um, you also have to find a landlord that's willing to work within what we pay. And with rent prices going up, we're finding that to be harder and harder. Um, I'm... Uh, was on the Affordable Housing Coalition with Empower Missouri, and I was on one of the work groups specific to the light tech program, the low-income housing tax credit. And the one thing we were looking at is how many landlords and housing providers were part of that program and are preparing to leave. And the numbers are huge because we know that it's really a landlord market right now. Um, they can charge the higher rents. They can get tenants in. And, you know, Kansas City was in the news that we have the highest um, rent hike in the country. And we're seeing that with tenants. And then, you know, it's not over. You get the voucher, you're approved, you find a place, it's within FMR. It also has to pass an inspection um, that is also based on HUD guidelines. And, you know, we just believe that everyone deserves housing and we try to make it easy. Um, Sometimes we're up against a lot of barriers, but we work really hard to try to overcome them. And we'll do questions at the end. Thank you. Hello, my name is Tony Casey. My pronouns are she, her. Um, I am the property manager for Savings Managed Properties. A little bit of background about me is I have been in property management for about nine years now. Um, the majority of that was spent with for-profit housing, um, so just your typical landlord. <clears throat> um, I was fortunate enough with the first property management company that I worked for to rent to save housing voucher holders. Um, and through this process, I fell in love with the clients, the housing specialists that I met, and SAVE's mission in general. So um, I applied multiple times over the next few years until they finally hired me. <laughs> so um, I'm very proud to say that I work for Saving. Um, as Richard mentioned previously, Saving started as an eight-room hospice home for people living with HIV and AIDS. But over the years, we've expanded and grown into owning and operating 97 units in the Kansas City area, making us Kansas City's largest permanent supportive housing provider. Um, and before I get into managed properties, I kind of want to touch on what Misha and Heather said about uh, what that looks like for the residents as far as paying and making it affordable housing. Um, so similar to the voucher program where um, Misha mentioned that the clients will pay 30% and then the voucher will cover that remainder. We are subsidized the same way. However, we are just subsidized collectively. So the residence rent is just 30% of their income. And if they don't have income, they don't have rent. So, um, <clears throat> In the years leading up to the 1990s, we saw a lot of medical advancements for those living with HIV and AIDS, and we saw that they were living longer and fuller lives. Um, this allowed for us to save or this allowed for SAVE to expand and offer housing to clients who have mental health as well as substance use disorder. 
Um, but in honor of our history, we do have HIV and AIDS remaining to be our preferred diagnosis. So what that means is if a client were to apply and have HIV or AIDS, they get bumped to the top of our waiting list. Um, unlike your traditional uh, housing or even supportive housing, we operate under the housing first model. I've included a diagram that kind of explains the differences between housing readiness, which you see in a lot of supportive housing programs versus housing first. Um, but in short, we believe that in order to attain long-term success, you have to start with permanent housing. Um, there's a common misconception that people who are experiencing homelessness, um, it's a direct result of like substance use or something similar. Um, but the reality is, is we often see that people are using these substances in order to cope with the reality of the life that they're living. Um, <clears throat> it's difficult to live on the streets. It's difficult to keep track of your medication. So I can't, you can't expect them to be med compliant. It's difficult to keep track of personal identifying paperwork, so it'd be near impossible to get a job. Um, and the fact is, is they don't have a safe place to return to and lock their door. So that alone, without that stability to make those improvements, is an unfair expectation. Um, and that's why we operate with the Housing First. What Housing First looks like for SAVE is we work closely with agencies in the area that our clients are, receive, our clients are receiving services through, um, such as Casey Care, Rediscover, University Health, SWOP Behavioral Health, and other similar agencies. Um, in addition to working with their resources, we also provide an in-house case manager. Um, and what she does is she works with our clients for transportation, um, meal prep, obtaining any food or furniture that they may need, um, and sometimes just an ear for people if someone needs to talk about what they're going through. Within our managed properties, we also have different programs, um, and I'm going to be talking about two of them. One of our programs is the STAIR program. Um, this is a university health program. STAIR has been around for about 10 years, and this primarily serves those with mental health diagnoses that have resulted in barriers making it hard for them to live independently. Um, we typically see referrals from group homes or other local RESCA programs. Um, RESCA, for those of you that don't know, is residential care. And although we're not staffed 24-7, we do have staff in this particular program into the evenings and on weekends so that we can provide that additional support that these clients might need. Um, our staff works in unison with the university health staff to provide support um, if they, to assist in kind of uh, different day-to-day -day living skills such as cleaning, food prep, um, if they were to be applying for a job, maybe we'd help practice with their resume, and also to maintain their med compliance. Um, this is typically a 12-month program. However, we understand that progress looks different for everyone, and as long as our clients are participating in the program and displaying efforts to obtain the goal of living independently, we will work with them and they will remain. Mm -hmm. Um, similar to STAIR, we have another transitional living program called Stepping Stones. Um, Stepping Stones is relatively new, and the difference between Stepping Stones and STAIR is that Stepping Stones does not have a time limit. Um, these residents tend to have more extreme issues resulting in being chronically unhoused. We often see that these residents have a background of severe trauma, and as a result of these traumas, they may have untreated mental health, a criminal history, or active substance use. Um, we work hard to meet these clients where they're at, 
And that looks, that may look like completely relearning how to function. Um, we can do things like helping them keep track of when to shower, when to brush their teeth, when to clean, how to organize or, uh, how, how to process food. Um, Things that you and I might take for granted as it comes second nature. So we really, really make an effort to meet them where they're at and work at their pace. Um, this is client-led. So we have to work initially to break any barriers that there might be. A lot of these clients are not willing to even let us help. Um, and that's a result of them being in constant survival mode for so long. Once you're accustomed to that, it's very difficult. And so you have to be very patient. Um, these tenants did not qualify for typical housing programs or even supportive housing such as group homes because of their significant inability to function out of outside of that survival mode. Um, I personally believe that this is one of Kansas City's most important transitional living programs and supportive housing as we are truly housing the clients that society de deems unhousable. <clears throat> This is my team. Um, I included a photo because I thought that you guys would want to see who I work with every day. Um, I've included a photo. So these are our maintenance techs, our janitorial, our team operations lead, our case manager, and myself. Um, I am incredibly proud of the team that I work with. I love that I get to spend my days with them. Um, I know that each of these individuals are dedicated to not only our properties, but our residents as well. Um, we really work hard to create a community by hosting events with our residents and encourage client engagement. Um, some of the things that we do are we do potlucks, uh, we play bingo every once in a while, we celebrate holidays. So every Christmas we'll get together, have a meal, Thanksgiving we have a meal, um, Halloween's coming up so we're about to do a costume contest and a soup contest which I'm really excited about. Um, and then like for birthdays every month, we'll get a birthday cake and we get cards for whomever has a birthday that month. We all sign and give it to them because the unfortunate reality is our clients do not have the friends and family support that you would want for them. Um, sometimes that might be the only holiday they, meal they have or the only birthday card they receive that year. So it's really important to us that they don't, they not only have housing, but that they have a quality life. Um, and throughout my two years with SAVE, I remain just as confident as the company's mission in general and my passions, and I am proud to be a representative. I'm going to have Heather talk about two other properties. Thank you. I just wanted to mention two other programs that we have at SAVE. Um, so this picture right here is Pride Haven. We opened this in January of 20, so right before COVID hit. Uh, Pride Haven is 20 units for transition age youth, 18 to 24, that um, identify as LGBTQA. We know that folks that um, are 18 to 24 that identify as LGBTQA, if they're on the street for 48 hours, they're going to be victimized. And so we have to get these young people into housing. Um, and so this is 20 units um, or 20 beds. So it's emergency shelter. Across the parking lot is All Haven which is on that bottom. Um, and All Haven is 50 units of permanent housing. Uh, so this is like what we've been talking about, multifamily housing. 
12 of those units are specific for transition age youth. So our goal is that young people are leaving Pride Haven and literally walking across a parking lot to get into permanent housing. So these are two our two newest programs that we just wanted to point out to everybody. And then I think we're ready for questions, right? Okay. Okay. 